Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And if it sounds like my voice is a little different today, that's because I am on the downside of a nasty cold. So I'm going to try to keep this episode fairly short. But I did want to make sure I did post a new episode here on Monday. And today we're going to venture into the history of the lost village of Yorkville over in Ross Township in Kalamazoo County. So come along and join me. Well, these colds can be nasty, I can tell you that for sure. I've been uh, really struggling with this for the past couple of days and it's put my recording schedule a little, little bit behind. But uh, we're going to venture into this article that was posted on the Kalamazoo History website on the Kalamazoo Library on the history of Yorkville. Uh, Yorkville apparently doesn't exist as this individual township anymore. Uh, It was once a bustling pioneer town located in Ross Township near the outlet of Gull Lake. Few identifying features have survived the bygone Hamlet's salad days as the township's hub But by 1900, Yorkville featured many of the types of community institutions that made for a modest but lively community, including a church, general store, cemetery, post office, blacksmith shop, tavern, schoolhouse, sawmill, gristmill, and a railway station. The general store was Townsend's and Hamilton's, and the little hamlet does show up on the map of 1890 of Ross Township. The first settler to call Yorkville home was Tillotson Barnes, who came from Oneida County, New York, in the fall of 1832. The town's name likely derives from Barnes' birthplace, where another nearby Yorkville existed. The close proximity to water worked in Barnes' favor over the coming months as, as he built a sawmill along the southern portion of the lake, The mill was a success and in constant use by settlers and land speculators who were descending upon Kalamazoo County in increasingly large numbers during the 1830s. With the success of the sawmill, Barnes built a nearby grist mill about 150 feet of the old stone bridge near East D Avenue and 37th Street. And he also built a tannery. Now, the tannery was never utilized for its original purpose after the business deal between Barnes and his partner fell through. In 1835, Barnes built a framed house for his family, dying there a year later. The house was situated just west of the Yorkville Cemetery. Barnes' daughter, Celestia, married a Mesa S. Parker in 1835, making their union the first to be registered in the township. The mills built by Barnes changed hands over time and were remodeled and upgraded over the course of the next half century. Other early settlers committed to cultivating a life out of the unforgiving wilderness included Thompson Lake, Samuel Griffin, Willard Carl, Hiram Blashfield, F.D. Pierce, who was the proprietor of the Yorkville Tavern, and Dr. Uriah Upjohn, who was the primary physician for much of the early residents of the township. There's an article uh, mentioned about Yorkville in uh, History of Kalamazoo County by Durant, 
And it says the year 1835 witnessed the building of the first schoolhouse in the township as Yorkville was the earliest settled portion of Ross Township. It was natural that within its precincts should be manifested an early interest in the matter where Messrs. Lake, Barnes, and Griffin of Yorkville. In 1865, the building was removed from its original site and remodeled. So outside of the grist mill, Yorkville was also the home to a mitten factory, which opened in 1849 by Thomas Kenyon, and factory workers produced buckskin gloves and mittens. In 1850, the factory turned out about 120,000 pairs of mittens and gloves. That's kind of interesting. And there's some great historic photos in this article, so I'll put the link to this article in the show note description so that if you're interested in reading the entire thing, you can see the photos as well of the early town of Yorkville. By 1873, just south of Yorkville, a railroad station was built along the Mansfield-Coldwater and Lake Michigan Railroad Line, increasing access to the lake's commercial, recreational, and entertainment features. The island that lies at the south end of Gull Lake was formed when a dam connected with a newer version of the gristmill was built sometime in the 1880s, an alteration that increased the level of water in the lake. The formed island featured a home built many years before the land became separated from the coastline that was occupied by the Marsh family in the 1840s and later converted into a cottage. Today, a group called the Go Lake Dam Association oversees the care and maintenance of the historic structure that at one time was utilized by the Price Cereal Food Company in the late 1800s. There's a great photo here of the Yorkville Milling Company and the railway station that was taken in 1893. That's part of the Richland Community Library local history collection. And it's just, uh, it shows the railway station with some, uh, looks like a train stop there at the station. And in the background, you can see one of the mills. And it's just uh, hard to believe that the, the area has changed so much that those buildings are no longer there. Built in 1851, the Yorkville Community Church, which stands at 11523 East D Avenue in Richland, Michigan. Uh, Originally, it was constructed for a Baptist congregation by a carpenter named W. Daniels. The church switched to non-denominational house of worship in 1947. Prior to the switch, the church had also been administered by... Wesleyans, Methodists, and Universalists. But the church has been there, the building the church has been in has been there since 1851, which is quite something. Now, there was a very terrible tragedy that happened in Yorkville in the summer of 1849. And this story that I'm about to read comes from a Kalamazoo Gazette article on a grisly murder involving the father, Ashbel Kellogg, and his son, William Kellogg. And the account was reprinted and included in this story, and it comes from the Syracuse Star. Now, I'm going to read you the story, and then I also did a dive into the story looking for more information in other newspapers. But I'll read you what they have here, and then I'll give you some insight into some other stories about this incident. And let's see if we can come up with some kind of a understanding of what actually happened there. Now, this article was written from a private letter 
from somebody that was living in Yorkville, and this was their account of it. It says, we have allowed the use of a private letter to a gentleman of this city, and the sad murder of young Kellogg is fully confirmed. It appears that the elder son has for some time suspected the mental aberration of his father, and though he might commit suicide. Mr. Kellogg seems to have entertained the idea that there would be a famine and that he would not live long. He said he did not think his sons capable of supporting themselves without his assistance and counsel, and he was determined to take both with him. In order to kill William, he detained him at this store until all the rest had left. He then wrote two or three letters and requested William to copy them. While he was copying, he went to the tavern and procured an axe and returned and put it down behind his son, who observed him but had no idea a father's hand would be raised against him. And while engaged on the second letter, the insane man raised the axe, struck him with the blunt end on the back of the head, breaking his skull most horribly. William fell from the chair and was repeatedly struck with blows and terribly had his head mangled. Mr. Kellogg then shut the door and locked it and with the axe went to the house of his elder son with the full intent to kill him. He had gone to bed, leaving the candle burning. The father came into the bedroom door, waited for a few seconds, and then watched until the light of the candle was extinguished. But his son, hearing a noise, arose and relit the candle, which served to turn him off. The father went down to the bridge and was making preparations for a plunge and a strike against the timbers, the sooner to end his life, but someone saw him and asked if he was ill. He replied, yes, I feel bad, and then he started for his house. One of the girls woke uh, young Mr. Kellogg and said his father acted very strangely. He at once arose and went in pursuit of him. He saw no light in the store, called William, but he made no reply. And then he woke a man by the name of Ide, and while in the act, he saw his father walking along the bank of the mill pond. The son ran around and headed him off, and then he ran into the bushes. Several men were now at hand, but he evaded them and finally plunged in against a beam that was purpose of making himself senseless. Mr. Eldred jumped in after him and found him 20 feet from the shore, in 15 feet of water, striving to keep his head under. It was with great difficulty that he was rescued as he was bent on drowning himself. He was constantly repeating, I have killed William, I have killed William, and that he was a murderer. They went back to the store, broke it open, and found the poor boy lying in his gore, a most horrific spectacle. He did not die as soon as he was expected, but lived on in the most excruciating pain until the ninth when he departed. So apparently William actually lived for a couple of days because this incident happened on the 7th of August. So the article goes on, the father felt dreadfully, though that he should be hung. A jury of the physicians ended up pronouncing him insane and an inquest and legal investigation was taken place and a verdict returned in accordance with the above facts. Young Mr. Kellogg will place his suffering parent in some insane asylum. Thus, this has been very dreadful affair, fully confirmed by the surviving son. We have strongly hoped that this was untrue, but alas, we have no more doubt. William is dead, and the father is a madman. And this is from the Syracuse Star. 
Now, there was a couple of other articles that referred to this incident that said that the son, William, had pulled a pistol on his father a few days before, which motivated him to retaliate and that his son, William, was trying to extort money from him. And that was why he did what he did. This article implies that he was insane. I did find articles that indicated that he was acquitted of the murder, but it didn't say anything else about him being committed to an insane asylum. So there's not a whole lot of information about what happened on this. I'll have to do a further deep dive into the story, and perhaps it will be a research project for one of my coming books. But I thought that was an interesting incident um, up there in the Richland area. The farther you get back in time on these stories, the more difficult and challenging it is to find the details of what actually happened. And uh, this is just one of those cases. But that's going to conclude this episode on the lost village of Yorkville and a forgotten tragedy that happened there. I hope you found this one of interest. And I know this is kind of a short episode Not my typical 20-minute or 25-minute long episode, but uh, I've been struggling with this cold today. Hopefully by the next episode, this will all be behind me. And so if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on. And if you have some time and you're out there on social media, you can follow me on Facebook at michaeldelawareauthor. And also on Instagram, and my handle there is Michigan History Guy. And of course, my new book is coming out on March 11th. That is Victorian Southwest Michigan True Crime, and you can pre-order a copy right now at michaeldelaware.com. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening. 